Anybody noticed uh, Israel in the news lately? About every day you pick up the paper, you read about Israel. And this morning I thought we might take a look together at Israel, kind of up close and personal look at, uh, at Israel. Oh. And um, the reason I think we ought to do that, as I messed it up, um, is because Israel is important to us as Christians, believe it or not. Israel, every time I see Israel in the news or in the paper, I get excited because it's, it's right from the Bible. Israel was God's idea. You know that? It's really about a spiritual thing more than it is a political thing, Israel. Israel, uh, in the past, uh, God called them out. We'll talk about that. And, he, and, he's, and they're called the apple of his eye, the Israelites. And he, he loves them, he woos them, they run away from him and he keeps wooing them and, and he's done that, does that for you and I. In the future, Israel's important to the prophecies concerning the second coming of Jesus. You know, Jesus came once, but he said to the disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If not so, I would have told you, I go prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I'll come back and take you to that place. Second coming of Jesus Christ is going to happen as surely as the first coming. And Israel plays a real important part in that. So every time you see Israel in the news, you're seeing something that's part of God's big plan. Now, it's kind of confusing, though, when you, when you listen to the news, you get all these commentaries and what it's all about and the Middle East conflict and all the entities involved. And they make it real complicated, well, Jerry O'Brien found a, a video he shared on, on Facebook that made it real simple. And I like things simple. How many people like things simple so you can understand them? Now, that's kind of our Christ the King philosophy, deliberate simplicity. So here's a guy to kind of start us off thinking about Israel who kind of explains what's happening over there today in simple terms so we can understand it. And he kind of boils it down to the essence, and it'll kind of lay a framework for us as we talk about Israel. Then we'll go back and, and see what is Israel, you know, how does it relate to us as Christians today. So we'll roll the video. When I did my graduate studies at the Middle East Institute at Columbia University's School of International Affairs, I took many courses on the question of the Middle East conflict. Semester after semester, we studied the Middle East conflict as if it was the most complex conflict in the world, when in fact, it is probably the easiest conflict in the world to explain. It may be the hardest to solve, but it is the easiest to explain. In it, side wants the other side dead. Israel wants to exist as a Jewish state and to live in peace. Israel also recognizes the right of Palestinians to have their own state and to live in peace. The problem, however, is that most Palestinians and many other Muslims and Arabs do not recognize the right of the Jewish state of Israel to exist. This has been true since 1947, when the United Nations voted to divide the land called Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state. The Jews accepted the United Nations partition, but no Arab or any other Muslim country accepted it. When British rule ended on May 15, 1948, the armies of all the neighboring Arab states, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Transjordan, and Egypt, attacked the one-day-old state of Israel in order to destroy it. But to the world's surprise, the little Jewish state survived. 
Then it happened again. In 1967, the dictator of Egypt, Gamal Abdel Nasser, announced his plan, in his words, to destroy Israel. He placed Egyptian troops on Israel's border, and armies of surrounding Arab countries were also mobilized to attack. However, Israel preemptively attacked Egypt and Syria. Israel did not attack Jordan and begged Jordan's king not to join the war. But he did. And only because of that did Israel take control of Jordanian land, specifically the West Bank of the Jordan River. Shortly after the war, the Arab states went to Khartoum, Sudan, and announced their famous three no's. No recognition, no peace, and no negotiations. What was Israel supposed to do? Well, one thing Israel did a little more than a decade later in 1978 was to give the entire Sinai Peninsula, an area of land bigger than Israel itself and with oil, back to Egypt because Egypt, under new leadership, signed a peace agreement with Israel. So Israel gave land for the promise of peace with Egypt, and it has always been willing to do the same thing with the Palestinians. All the Palestinians have ever had to do is recognize Israel as a Jewish state and promise to live in peace with it. But when Israel has proposed trading land for peace, as it did in 2000, when it agreed to give the Palestinians a sovereign state in more than 95% of the West Bank and all of Gaza, the Palestinian leadership rejected the offer and instead responded by sending waves of suicide terrorists into Israel. Meanwhile, Palestinian radio, television, and school curricula remain filled with glorification of terrorists, demonization of Jews, and the daily repeated message that Israel should cease to exist. So it's not hard to explain the Middle East dispute. One side wants the other dead. The motto of Hamas, the Palestinian rulers of Gaza, is we love death as much as the Jews love life. There are 22 Arab states in the world, stretching from the Atlantic Ocean to the Indian Ocean. There is one Jewish state in the world, and it is about the size of New Jersey. In fact, tiny El Salvador is larger than Israel. Finally, think about these two questions. If tomorrow Israel laid down its arms and announced, we will fight no more, what would happen? And if the Arab countries around Israel laid down their arms and announced, we will fight no more, what would happen? In the first case, there would be an immediate destruction of the state of Israel and mass murder of its Jewish population. In the second case, there would be peace the next day. As I said at the outset, it is a simple problem to describe. One side wants the other dead. And if it didn't, there would be peace. Please remember this. There has never been a state in the geographic area known as Palestine that was not Jewish. Israel is the third Jewish state to exist in that area. There was never an Arab state, never a Palestinian state, never a Muslim or any other state. That's the issue. Why can't the one Jewish state the size of El Salvador be allowed to exist? That is the Middle East problem. I'm Dennis Prager.
So he makes it uh, pretty easy. If I can get past his... You want to click? Oh. Israel is, sits out in the middle of this area as a Jewish state, surrounded by all its enemies. And in the natural, it shouldn't be there. He mentioned that Israel has been a state there three times. And here it is today. And the existence of the nation of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy because the Bible says in the last days there would be a nation called Israel. And in May 15th, 1948, when they were 14th and they declared uh, independence and became a nation, all the armies attacked them and they survived. 67, same thing. Why is Israel there? Because God has a plan that's bigger than politics. You believe that? It's not about international politics. It's about God's plan for mankind. And Israel's part of that. And, and how did Israel, what's the whole deal with Israel? How did it even come about? And I think we need to understand that. Speaking of David's mighty men who fought, stood alongside David when David was, was uh, reigning, uh, they said the men from Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel should do. I think it's important that we understand the times as Christians. So when we read the news and we see the nation of Israel, we understand this isn't just some geopolitical thing. It has a spiritual basis that affects us as Christians because Christianity flew, flowed out of Judaism, and out of Judaism, we were given the grift of grace, uh, of grace through Christ, who brought in the new covenant of, of salvation through faith in him. But so Israel, where did it start? You remember a guy named Abram? That was his first name. Some of you may know him better as Abraham. In the 12th chapter of Genesis, which is real early in the history after Noah, after the Tower, or tower of Babel, uh, there's people, and all of a sudden, God kicks off this plan by going to one man. You know, God has the whole world there. I mean, there's not as many people now, but they're all there. And God goes to one man to start his plan of salvation. And this is really the start of the plan of salvation. And he goes to this guy, Arab, uh, Abram, I want to say Abraham, but it's Abram. The Lord said, Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. Abram was living with his family in Haran. God said, I want you to go to a different land. And why do you want me to leave? I got everything here. I got possessions. Things are good. And he said, I want you to go. I've chosen you to go to a land I'll show you. And this is what I'll do. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you are cursed, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Christ came through the seed of Abraham. If you chase his lineage back, the Messiah. This is the beginning of the plan. And he says, I want you to go to a land. And Abraham, Abram believed God, and he went to the land. And Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old. I'd like to be 75. And God says, I want you to move. Go to a different place. Oh. <laughs> he took his wife, Sarai, 
Her name was also changed to Sarah's nephew, Lot. All the possessions they had accumulated, the people they had acquired in Iran, they set out for the land of what? Canaan. You know, another name for that area in Israel is Canaan land. There's some old hymns. I'm going to Canaan land. The land of Canaan. Abraham takes his family and moves to Canaan and begins to settle there. They call it the promised land because it was promised to Abraham. When he gets there, God makes another agreement with him. I don't know if this is on or... When Abram was 90 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. So 75, he moves to Canaan land, to the area of Israel. At 90, God says, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and blamelessly. Then I'll make my covenant between me me and you and you'll greatly increase in numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You'll be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be what? Abraham. For I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I'll make nations of you. And kings will come for you from you. Even the Messiah. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner. Here it is. I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your what? Descendants after you and I'll be their God. To the Jewish people, to the descendants of Abraham, he gave that land way back in the book of Genesis. And he began dealing with the Israelites and began showing them how much he loved them. And, and you can read the Old Testament, the stories in there. Of course, Abraham had a son, Isaac, and Isaac had a son, uh, two sons, Jacob and Esau, and they didn't get along real well. Uh, Jacob fled from Canaan land to get away from Esau. Because he stole his birthright and other things. Finally, Jacob goes back to Canaan to try to make things right with Esau. And this is all Old Testament stories you probably know. When he gets back to make things right with Esau, uh, one night before he meets Esau, he wrestles all night with God. God appears in the in, in form of a man. Some believe it's Christophany. And there's a wrestling match all night, Eddie. It's a long match all night. Wrestling with God and... Uh, and uh, and God said, you know, let's quit this. And Abraham said, I'm not, I mean, Jacob said, I'm not going to quit until you bless me. And so God said, okay. And, and he blessed Jacob. And when he blessed him, he gave him a new name. What name did he give him? Israel. Yeah, listen to this. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you'll no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him. Israel, and God said to him, I'm God Almighty, be fruitful, increase in number, a nation and community of nations will come from you, just like Abraham, and kings will be among your descendants. Go look at the genealogy of Christ in Matthew. Jacob's in there. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you, and I give this land to you and your descendants after you. Who was the land given to? To Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is truly the promised land. And you know the rest of the story. Um, Jacob uh, had 12 sons. 10 of those sons became the 10 tribes of Israel. Two of his grandsons became mothers, so they had 12 tribes. Uh, some of the sons didn't like the littlest, one of, their other, one of their brothers, Joseph, so they sold Joseph into slavery. Remember the story? Joseph ends up 
going to Egypt. He becomes a king. There's a, a famine in Canaan land. So the Israelites, who weren't a nation, just a group of people, come down to Canaan land. And what did they come down to Egypt? And what did they do in Egypt for 400 years? What was their job title? Slave. Slave. Now this you know, beginning nation of Israel, it's not even a nation. They go down to Egypt because there's a famine. And fortunately, God had sent one of Jacob's kids there ahead of time to be the king. And, and why Jacob, why Joseph was ruling, it was good. But when Joseph died and a new Pharaoh came along, they made slaves of the Jews, the Israelites. And for 400 years, they were slaves. They built pyramids. They built bricks. Sometimes they had to build bricks without straw. But God in his sovereignty raised up a person. Who was the person he raised up? Moses. Moses comes uh, to power in Pharaoh's house. And God says, no, that's not where you're going to rule. You go to the desert. The burning bush tells him, go back to Egypt and set my people what? Free. So he goes back to Egypt. And he tells Pharaoh, you're supposed to let these Israelites go back to Canaan. Because that's God's promised land. And Pharaoh says, no problem. You guys can go, right? No, Pharaoh says, no way, Jose. You're not going. I need slaves. If you guys go, where's my slaves? And so God said, tell Pharaoh, if he doesn't let him go, there's going to be a little plague action going on. Pharaoh resisted, you know, the 10 plagues. And finally, the Israelites are allowed to go. They cross the Red Sea. Miraculously, it opens. And they're on the way to the promised land. And when they get to the promised land, they cross the Jordan, they go in the promised land, and they finally establish themselves as the nation of Israel. And while they're there, it prospers. And by 1000 BC, Israel is in its golden era. Solomon's temple has been built. David had just been king. Solomon's temple, there were some pictures of Solomon's temple there. No, they went away. Are they on your deal? Anyway, imagine Solomon's temple right there. <laughs> During his golden era, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, reigned. Uh, Israel stretched from you know, way down south to way up north. And it was a time of prosperity for the kingdom of Israel. And this is the first time that Israel was a nation there. Of course, that didn't last because they rebelled against God. They fought amongst themselves. The kingdom split in two. Ten tribes went to the north, and they called the northern kingdom Israel. Two tribes went to the south. They called that Judah. And now they had divided Israel up into two parts, but they're really all part of Israel. And sometimes they'd serve God, and things would go well. Sometimes they'd rebel against God, and things would go bad. Anybody notice how that works? (laughs) Serving God is much easier and much better. Not necessarily easier, but much better. Um, And so God said, okay, I've had enough of your rebellion. I'm going to destroy you as a nation. And he sent the Syrians in somewhere. Button, okay. Okay. And this was, okay. In 722 BC, God sent Sargon. I'd like to fight against a guy named Sargon. You know, Sargon, the Syrian, came down and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. The ten tribes were scattered. And that's called the Despora, where the Jews are scattered. And those ten tribes are just scattered. The Syrians like to go into a land, attack it, and take the people, move them out, and move other people from other captive lands in. And so... There wouldn't be rebellion. So 722, there's no 
northern kingdom of Israel anymore. And uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, the two tribes thought, you know, we're cool, everything's good, but they rebelled against God. And God sent a king named Nebuchadnezzar who came in and destroyed Jerusalem, flattened Solomon's temple, and the Jews were taken off into captivity for 70 years. And the, and for those 70 years, they were in captivity. And after the 70 years, they came back. And the temple was destroyed. If you know Nehemiah and Ezra, those guys, they go back after the 70 years. Everything's wiped out. They rebuild the temple, Mark. But it was nothing like Solomon's temple. In fact, people who had seen Solomon's temple, when they saw the new temple, you know what they did? They cried. Said, man, this ain't no temple. You should have saw Solomon's temple. So they had the second temple. The second temple was there, and it lasted until the time of Jesus. It was there when Jesus was alive. Herod did some work on it. Now they called it Herod's temple because he upgraded the temple. It was never like Solomon's temple again. And the Jews are back in the land. They got a temple. And then the Romans come to power. The Romans besiege the area. Now the Jews are under Roman bondage. Finally, the Romans decide they don't like the Jewish state there anymore because of their rebellion. And in 70 AD, the uh, armies of the Roman forces destroy uh, the temple again. If you want to read about it, you know there's a history book that tells all about the destruction of that second temple. <clears throat> Jesus died around 33, 35 AD, or maybe a little earlier, depending on when you date his birth. Just 40 years after that, the 10th Legion army under Titus rose in Jerusalem. They besieged Jerusalem they put, uh, don't let anything come in and out. The people are starving. If you come out, you get killed. They crucified people, just lined them up in rolls outside the city. And finally, in 70 AD, Jerusalem fell. They destroyed the temple. Jesus said, this temple, remember he told them, this temple is going to be destroyed. Not one rock will be left standing on another. And they laughed. Nobody's going to destroy it. 40 years after he said it, it was destroyed. Josephus was a historian who lived at that time, and he watched it happen, and he wrote a book called Josephus, if you want to read about the destruction. So in 70 AD, Jewish nation does not exist anymore. It's gone. The Jews are scattered. Anybody ever heard of Masada? The last stand of the Jews was up on a hill called Masada. The Romans put a siege ramp. They took like a couple years to build this ramp. And these people survived up there somehow. And when they finally, the Romans finally got into Masada, all the people were dead because they said we'd rather die free than to live as Roman slaves. In fact, for a while when special forces of the Israeli special forces, they'd take them up to Masada and they would do their oath of office. And their motto was never again. Never again, we're going to allow Israel to be destroyed. So 70 AD, there's no Israel. Thing is, though, the Bible said there would be an Israel in the last days. So we got a problem. I have an old book on Bible prophecy, and in that book, it was written before, you know, back in the 1800s, I think, early 1900s. And the writer said, you know, Bible prophecy says 
that in order for the end times to really happen, Israel needs to be a nation again. But I see no way that could happen. But the Bible says it's going to happen, so it will what? Happen. And this guy believed the Bible, he just hadn't seen it. And during those uh, 2,000 years, you know, one group kind of ruled over the area. They never had a state there, they just ruled it. The Ottoman Empire had it. The British finally got a hold of it. And then World War II came along. And six million Jews were killed and people thought, how can there be a Jewish nation? And, and, and Bible, believe, Bible believers were saying, so the Bible says there's going to be. I don't know how, but there will be. Because the Bible said that somehow God would pull a nation together. This is what he said in prophecy. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They'll plant vineyards and drink their wine. They'll make gardens and eat their fruit. I'll plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted for the land I've given them, says the Lord your God. In Amos, he says, in the latter days, I will bring back my people to the land and they will plant gardens. Anybody been to Israel? Any gardens over there? The agriculture with it, when water gets on that land, it's just amazing. Agriculture. And... And God said that, I will bring them back in the last days. And then there's a prophet, Ezekiel, who has a prophecy of the valley of the dry bones. Anybody know that one? The valley of the dry bones. There used to be a song, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Anybody remember that one? Tommy remembers it. Carl, you remember that? Them bones, yeah. It was about this. This is a prophecy that said there will be an Israel one day again. Destroyed by the Romans, 70 AD. 2,000 years, not a nation. There's never been a nation in the history of the world come back after being gone 2,000 years. But the Bible said Israel would. In Ezekiel's vision, God takes him out to this valley. Then he sees this valley of bones. And he goes, God, what is this? What are these? And he says these bones are the whole, whole nation of Israel. And the bones are saying, our hope is lost. We are cut off and we have no hope pile of bones. I, you've seen pictures of the Holocaust where they just pile Jewish people up and I, I'm wondering if that's something maybe Ezekiel saw. It looked like they were cut off. There was no hope. If you were in, in, uh, in the Holocaust and someone told you there's going to be a Jewish nation in just a few years, you'd, you'd say no way. We're cut off without hope. And God told Ezekiel prophesize to these bones and tell these bones to come together and in the vision the bones start hooking up. Flesh comes on the bones and the bones become people and they're walking. And he says, that's it. That's what's going to happen. There will be a nation called Israel. And he said, not only that, when they come back together there will be one nation. They were scattered originally. There was two nations. Now they'll come back you know, the north and the south. This is what the Lord says. I'll take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I'll gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. They were scattered everywhere. And I've talked to, or heard people talk who, who went back to Israel when it became a nation. They said they don't know what it was, but they just felt they had to go back. They were Jewish and they felt they came from Russia. They came from America and they began to come. And God said, in the last days, there will be a nation. And so the British, during World War II, six million Jews are killed. It looks like there's no hope. There's no chance. The war is over. And the British, 
who have the area of Canaan or Palestine, says, we're going to do something. We're going to divide part of it. We're going to give some of the Palestinians that live there this space. We'll give the Jews this space, a space the size of the state of New Jersey, about the size of Western Washington, just the west side of Washington. Not very big. And the Israelites, I mean, the Jews were just excited. They were going to have a homeland again after 2,000 years. The surrounding nations weren't excited. They said, no way, we're going to destroy you. And you saw there, the very day they declared independence, they were attacked and destroyed, right? No. They survived because God had his hand on that little nation. I want you to watch this next video clip. It's an actual clip of the day they declared independence. And what you're seeing is fulfillment of biblical prophecy in this newsreel. It's in Hebrew, but they translate it for English in case none of you are Hebrew scholars. This is the day. ביום שישי, ה' באייר תשח, 14 במאי 1948, אחר הצהריים, באו המוזמנים אל בניין מוזיאום תל אביב בשדרות רוטשילד 16. הם התבקשו לשמור את סיבת ההזמנה, טקס הכרזת העצמאות, בסוד. אבל בבואם מצאו את חצי העיר ממתינה להם. סמוך לשעה ארבע הגיע דוד בן גוריון. כל חייו היו מסע אל הרגע הזה. אשר יפתח לרווחה את שערי המולדת לכל יהודי ותעניק לעם היהודי מעמד של אומה שבת זכיות בתוך העמים. לפיכך נתכנסנו, אנו חברי מועצת העם, נציגי היישוב העברי והתנועה הציונית ביום סיום המנדט הבריטי על ארץ ישראל. ותוקף זכותנו הטבעית וההיסטורית ועל יסוד החלטת עצרת האומות המוחדות אנו מכריזים בזאת על הקמת מדינה יהודית בארץ ישראל היא מדינת ישראל May 14th, 1948. We, based on historical and natural rights, we declare nation. And there's biblical fulfillment. But the trouble with it is they got everything back, but they didn't have Jerusalem. 
and their capital was Jerusalem. And they were attacked by the enemy and they survived. But the Bible indicated that they would somehow be back in Jerusalem because in the end times, a lot of the stuff that happens happens in the Israeli state with Jerusalem as its capital. But people said, how will they ever get Jerusalem? Jerusalem will never be turned over from uh, the surrounding people. But in 1967, as you saw in that video clip, the armies, Egypt, Nasser, and the surrounding armies decided they were going to attack Israel and wipe them out once and for all. Let's get rid of Israel. We're done. Israel heard about it and preemptively attacked them and gained the Sinai Peninsula and the Western Bank. The Western Bank is where Jerusalem is. And when they got to the Western Bank, they, for the first time in 2,000 years, Jerusalem was in the hands of Israel. And today, Jerusalem, is the state of Israel declares Jerusalem as its capital. And the Star of David flies over Jerusalem. When they went into that city, Moshe Dayan, who was the general, when he went in, one of the first things they did, they went to the Wailing Wall. Anybody know what the Wailing Wall is? I'll show you a picture here, maybe. Maybe I won't. I don't know where my pictures went, but there was a picture of a Wailing Wall uh, somewhere. Anyway, that likes to come back. The Wailing Wall... You've probably have you seen pictures of the, the Jews praying up at this wall and they'll put prayer requests in there and stuff? When they do that, um, that's called the Wailing Wall. But the Jews, Jews don't call it the Wailing Wall. The Gentiles named it the Wailing Wall because when the Jewish people go to pray, a lot of times they're crying and carrying on because they're just so happy. You know what that Wailing Wall is? The Jews call it the Western Wall. And when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman armies, they destroyed all the temple, but there was this outer wall called the Western Wall. And for some reason, they didn't destroy it. So when they went back into Jerusalem, they actually went back to a wall that existed during the time when the temple was there. And that's why it's so sacred to the Jewish people, because it's part of when they were a nation back in uh, before 70 AD. So in 67, they come in. I had some pictures of them at the wall praying, but that's the wall. So now Jerusalem is back in the hands of the Israelites. Israel is a state again. What, what does that mean to you and I? What's the importance of that? Because all end time prophecy points to Jerusalem. When Jesus comes again, he will land and stand again on where? The Mount of Olives. Where's the Mount of Olives? In Jerusalem. In the end times, uh, there's going to be wars and rumors of war, Jesus said. And out of that, some powerful person called the Antichrist is going to rise up and offer peace to the world. You know, so much war, there'll be a one man of peace and he'll make it look really good. But during the middle of that time called the tribulation period, he turns against the Jews. He goes into a rebuilt temple and a lot of Christian scholars believe there's going to be a third temple. And he, and he desecrates that temple and turns against the Jews. And for the last three and a half years, of that seven-year period, uh, literally all the wrath of God in the book of Revelation is poured out and it's moving right towards the end time. And the final culmination in the nation of Israel, the armies of the world gather against them in a place called Armageddon. And when it looks like uh, 
Israel and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Christ himself returns with the armies of heaven and establishes his kingdom for a thousand years, reigning and ruling with you and I. And then it gets better and goes on into eternity. So when you read about Israel, when you read about Jerusalem, it's not a political thing. God brought them back into the land and there's been a national restoration. But God is interested in their spiritual restoration. He still loves the Jewish people, and he wants them to know him as Messiah. And part of God's plan is going to be fulfilled. Why do we care about it? So what should we do? We need to keep an eye on Israel. Therefore, keep watch. These are the words of Jesus. Watch the news. Know what's going on. Israel is important. Because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. Own the house and know what time the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch, would have not let his house be broken into. So you must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you don't expect him. Keep watch. Watch Israel. Watch what's going on. Keep an eye on Jerusalem. It's a focal point of Bible prophecy right now. And then pray for Israel. Did you know Psalms 122, 6 says, pray for the peace of what? Jerusalem. And we're not just praying for Physical peace, we're praying for spiritual peace. We're praying that the Jewish people there will recognize Christ as Messiah. Jesus was Jewish. He's their Messiah. And if you ever met a Jewish person who's found Jesus as Messiah, they're so excited because they have their Jewish roots, but now they know Jesus, Yeshua, as Messiah. Pray for that for Israel. And then pray for the surrounding nations. You know, God loves the Arab nations surrounding Israel because the Bible says what? Read it with me. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We have some friends who are involved in Muslim ministry. It's a hard ministry. But God loves them. And God has ways of getting through to people when it doesn't seem like it's possible. Look at old, old Paul. Who'd ever think Paul would become a, Saul would become a Christian, but God spoke to his heart. So Israel is there. When you read it in the news, remember it's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Keep your eye on it. Pray for Israel. Pray for the surrounding nations. And know that the end times are coming and we need to be aware. We don't know when. We're not going to make a date. But he said, when you see these things come to pass, lift up your head and look up because your redemption's getting closer. We're closer today than we were yesterday to the second coming, right? I can guarantee you that. <laughs> and finally, what should we do? We need to keep meeting together. Let us not give up meeting together or some in the habit of doing. There's people who just decided they're not going to meet together. We don't really need to gather as a body and, and for one another. But, but the writer of Hebrews says this, don't give up meeting together, but encourage one another. We need to keep encouraging one another. There's some discouraging news out there, right? Every day you pick up paper, it's discouraging news. But I got some good news. I read the last chapter and we win, right? We know the last play. And we got to keep our eyes fixed on that. So encourage one another. We're coming here to be encouraged. When I see Israel, I get excited. That's Bible stuff. And even more so as you see the day approaching. Which day? The day in capital letters. The second coming of Christ. As you see that approaching, meet more often. Come together more often. 
And to kind of facilitate this, what we're going to do starting today, the worship team can come up and get ready to close on a song. As soon as we close, instead of picking up the chairs and everybody exiting, like, you know, in the first 30 seconds, we're going to have a 10-minute connect time. And that just means you can talk to somebody for 10 minutes before anything moves. The worship team's going to come out and connect. And we just want to take 10 minutes to connect. Because I've had people say, you know, after church, things start to move, and I don't even have a chance to say hi. And so with the setup crew, we've talked to them. Can, can we have 10 minutes? And so we're going to start after the worship team closes. Whatever the clock's on, we'll go 10 minutes from there, and then we'll move stuff. So hang around, encourage one another even more so as you see the day approaching. Let's pray.